Hi, and welcome to a Dad's Path podcast. We're real dads solving everyday problems. Each week we tackle issues that dads everywhere face and deliver actions you can take right away. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode and go to adadspath.com to get our free newsletter exclusively for dads. Our goal is to help you make fatherhood count. Dad on. Welcome to another episode of the Dad's Path Podcast. I'm Will Bronstein. Today we're here with Jessica Leahy. She's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed, and also The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. For over 20 years, Jess has taught every grade from 6 to 12 in both public and private schools, and spent five years teaching in a drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents in Vermont. She's written about education, parenting, and child welfare for The Washington Post, The Atlantic, and her biweekly column, The Parent-Teacher Conference, ran for three years at The New York Times. She also designed and wrote the educational curriculum for Amazon Kids' award-winning series, The Stinky and Dirty Show, and was a 2019 Pushcart Prize nominee. She also holds the dubious honor of having written an article that was later adapted as a writing prompt for the 2018 SAT. I'm not sure I would brag about that, but it's... <laughs> But I like it. I like it. She co-hosts the M Writing Podcast from her empty nest in Vermont. Welcome, Jess. So happy to have you here. Thank you. That SAT thing is kind of traitorous since many of my students have had to, you know, all of, almost all of my students have taken the SAT. And in fact, that's how I found out. One of my former students from middle school was taking the SAT, came home and said, Mom, Jess Leahy's work was on the SAT. And that's how I found out. <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. Uh, well, that speaks to the quality of your work. So I, I, uh, I am impressed. Um, first, can we just start? Uh, wh- why are, why why did you write the book, The Gift of Failure? How did you come up with the idea? What was your, what drove you to do that? So I have been a writer my whole life in the sense that, you know, the, as many authors often talk about this, you know, everything from like, you know, editor in chief of my school paper, and I've always been a writer and all that sort of stuff. But I also am I mean, I am a born teacher. In fact, I had gone to law school and part of the way through law school, I was asked to teach a class, um, a summer program for gifted kids. And I just, I came home that first day and I was just blown over. I knew in that moment, I probably wasn't going to ever practice law, but I was going to be a teacher. So I had been teaching for a long time and I had started writing about sort of the, a lot of teachers blog. It's a really cool thing, actually, a lot of teachers blog. And it's a great way for teachers to learn about what other teachers are doing in their classroom. And increasingly, I was hearing and I was feeling a lot of frustration around um, a lot of the parenting practices that were doing an end run around life, not just school lessons, but life lessons, learning opportunities, opportunities for kids to become competent. And you know, it's one thing to have that anecdotal experience, and it's another thing to read a study that comes out talking about the impact of overparenting on, um, whether you call it overparenting, helicopter parenting, snowplow parenting, whatever, on kids. And what I was really interested in is not just what it does to, obviously, like their confidence, their resilience, all that sort of stuff, but what it does to their motivation and their learning. And I hadn't seen a book you know, I wanted that both as a teacher and as a parent, and that book didn't exist. Like, and so I, a study came out of Australia and I wrote about it for my blog. 
was about to hit publish on the blog. And I'm like, wait, I think I might be able to put this somewhere. And so that was my very first article for The Atlantic. Keeping in mind, of course, that I had been rejected for an internship, an unpaid internship right when I graduated from college with The Atlantic. So for me, this was a massive full circle moment. And so anyway, that article, The Atlantic went bananas. It was called uh, Why Parents Need to Let Their Children Fail. And that uh, prompted a big auction for the book that became The Gift of Failure. But, you know, it I have the coolest job in the world, which is to get really curious about a topic and then go and just spend a year or two just immersed in the research and um, reading everything I can get my hands on and then essentially translating that for people who don't want to spend two years immersed in the research. It's a yeah, pretty no. cool job. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um that's awesome. No, it's, and it's important. I think when you, you know, when you're like, you're able to dive in and be really interested yourself, and then you can distill that into things that are, you know, more bite-sized, more actionable for dads like us, for parents who, even if we did have the time, wouldn't have the skill set. you know, you necessarily have. So I'm also um, super lucky in that I have a fam. I live in a family of researchers. My husband is a physician and a medical ethicist, and my son is a, a research economist. And my daughter is in college and and just completely passionate about research. And so we actually, this is actually the stuff we talk about around the dinner table. It's a, <laughs> it's a pretty uh, where we can be. It's a very quiet household, but it's a pretty intense household too. Awesome. No, that's. Sounds perfect. <laughs> Sounds like a great environment. Uh, so let's dive in about, you know, the importance of allowing failure. And uh, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, can you explain, I guess, why experiencing failure start there is crucial, why it's so important for a child's development? Yeah. So the first thing I wanted to do was sort of divorce all of this research from sort of the pop culture stuff that's out there. Like I love Angela Duckworth's work on grit and I love um, Carol Dweck's work on fixed and growth mindsets and all that stuff. But I really wanted to look at um, the evidence on what overparenting does well, and what extrinsic motivators like grades, points, trophies, scores, uh, honor roll, you know, and the other stuff like withholding your love in exchange for good performance on a test or, um, you know, bribing your kids with, you know, if you don't get a B or better this semester, then you're grounded, that kind of stuff. Uh, any attempt to control kids' behavior from the outside, all of these questions came together to say, okay, what does that do to motivation and what does that do to a kid's innate drive to learn, their motivation to learn. And so um, there's a couple of different ways to come at this. We know that extrinsic motivators like grades, point scores, all that stuff actually undermine long-term motivation to want to learn. So, and to do lots of different things. And, you know, you can find that in lots of different places. You can find that in um, Dan Pink's book, Drive. You can find that in Edward DC's work. Um, so that we knew, and yet it runs counter to almost all of the tools we use for learning, grades, points, scores, sticker charts, you know, all that kind of stuff. So if we're, and especially as a teacher, if I'm using the very tools that undermine a kid's desire and motivation to learn over the long term, then what is that doing? And as a parent, sticker charts, you know, uh, holding, you know, I, I joke about the fact that at the time I was learning this stuff, I was regularly like holding my kid's favorite stuffed animal hostage on the top of the refrigerator until they cleaned their room or whatever that thing was. Yeah. So I'm undermining my kid's motivation at home as well. And, and 
So that's problematic for me. At the same time, I'm hurt hearing from my students that they're not as interested in learning and they're more, you know, interested in what their score on the test is going to be. So that's a problem. Um, and then at the same time, things like self-efficacy, self-confidence, um, all of the self-esteem, all of the tools that we think work to build these things actually can run counter, especially when you look at the research on self-esteem. So a lot of things we're doing as parents to try to build up our kids are actually undermining their desire to learn, undermining their creativity too. That's another big factor here. Like art and music teachers are in deep doo-doo because the very things, the the tools they're supposed to use to evaluate creativity <laughs> and effort in their classes are actually undermining creativity and effort <sighs> in their classes. So, which is the reason I go and do a lot of professional development because we're in a really tight spot. Um, so the answer to all of this is somehow building up intrinsic motivation. And intrinsic motivation, according to Edward DC, is made up of giving kids more autonomy, helping them feel more competent, not just confident, and being deeply connected to them and helping them be deeply connected to their efforts and what their efforts can do out in the world. So autonomy, competence, and connection. And that's where most of my interest lies. You know, that's, that's where, how do we engage all of that? It has become the sort of the focus. And really what that comes down to from a teaching perspective is the term engagement. How do we create more engagement in learning? Um, and how do I create more engagement as a parent? No, that's fantastic. So if I could just jump in real quick. Um, yeah, on course. the Because you gave that example of, um, you know, getting your kids to clean, then they get their stuffed mm -hmm. animals back or whatever. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like still stressed from last night where I was like, guys, we need to clean. The cleaning lady's coming. Yeah. We need to clean. We need to clean. And it was just pulling my hair out kind of thing. I love uh, that sentence so much. We have to clean because the cleaning lady is coming. That's always made me chuckle. I just yeah, I know. I, that. <laughs> That's the reason I don't have anyone clean my house is it would be so stressful. I might as well just clean my house because it's too stressful to clean my house for someone else to clean my house. Yeah, <laughs> the irony is not lost on me, you know, believe me. But there's no real intrinsic motivation there for the kids. Right, you know? right. Uh, so I, is that something you just say, hey, there's some things you need to do that you're not going to be that motivated to do? Or how would you approach that without using the ex, you know, extrinsic motivators? So if you want to take your very specific example, which is a really common one that comes up, like I can't get my kids to clean their room. Um, so it's not that I'm not saying that's not a worthy goal. You know, there are lots of people who truly believe that, you know, um, you know, if your space is neat, then you're more, you know, focused and organized and more productive and all that sort of stuff, which by the way, is not true. It turns out that that is not true. And also a messy child does not an adult make. My sister and I were both unbelievably messy children, just as an anecdotal example. And my sister and I are both total neatniks. Um, and I'm extraordinarily organized as an adult. But um, anyway, so my question then is, what are your priorities? Like if you want your kids really engaged in, for example, household duties, find the household duties that impact the family as a whole. We had, I had this conversation at a school recently with a dad who had read that book about how it's so important to make your bed every morning, that that's like the core thing that if you do that, the rest will flow. And I, and I, he said, but I just can't get my kid to make their bed. And I wanted to point out that 
the more you can help kids see that doing household duties is part of being a responsible member of a family because it impacts the whole family, that we as a family need to pull together and do things sometimes that aren't fun because that's part of being in a family. And the more you pick tasks that are relevant to the kids and relevant to the family as a whole, the more likely that's going to fly. Keeping their rooms clean, and this happens to be a sticking point for me because Kids have so little autonomy in their lives, especially like, for example, during COVID when we were all home together all the time. The one place where kids can have a little bit of expression, a little bit of control is in their own space. And so for me, when I'm prioritizing how to get kids engaged in household duties for the sake of being a part of a family and for all the psychological benefits that flow from that, and there are lots, and I talk about those in Gift of Failure, um, keeping their room clean is not going to be very high on my list. Um, in fact, in our house, from the very beginning, our, our rule has been, your room is your room. You can keep it how you like to a certain degree. It can't smell. It can't spill out into the hallway, that kind of thing. Um, but there are these other duties that are really important that you're, you have to engage in because they're part of keeping our family going. Oh, I love that. That's, that's perfect. I mean, that's where I was going to go next is just how do we step back and start yeah. letting our kids be more autonomous in some of these areas by not ripping the rug out from under them by clearing by like there are a lot of parents who I talk to at my at events that I do whether that's at schools or community organizations whatever and they say look okay I get it I've done too much for my kids I have undermanned I have underestimated my kids I have taught them that they are incompetent there's this term called learned helplessness that is very real and we teach it to them we teach them that they are helpless and they just give that back to us so how do I stop doing that and the really the first thing you have to do is give really, really clear expectations. Talk to them, whether they're really little or really big. And, and there's different ways you can talk about them. And I go into that in the book as well. But sweetie, you know what? I think I've been doing too much for you. And it's it's really important that you understand that being part of a family means we all have to do stuff to pull our weight in this family. It's what keeps the family going. And research shows that kids who do pull their weight in a family and keep the family going on a regular basis suffer fewer psychological um, negative effects when something really big does go wrong, like an illness in the family or a death in the family or something like that, or a divorce, whatever. Um, and to that end, here's what you're responsible for now. And whether that's doing your homework on your own, you have to have some super clear expectations about what that means. Like, you know, just do your homework. It may not be clear enough. I talk in the book about the fact that for my daughter, that was definitely not clear enough. We needed to make it, we had to distill that down into like, you know, put your homework in the backpack, bring your backpack home, open your backpack, take your homework out of your backpack, do your best on your homework, give your best effort and all these other little pieces. And then if you don't fulfill these expectations, whether it's doing your own homework and being responsible for that or keeping your room neat or whatever it is, here are the very clear consequences that will follow. And as off as much as possible, try to keep those consequences as logical as, um, what we what might naturally happen if they don't do those things. So for example, um, I live in Vermont. We heat our house with wood and partially with wood. And so bringing the wood from the wood pile to a big wood holding area in our mudroom has long been the children's, was long the children's task. I don't care about being cold. I don't mind being cold at all. They hate it. In order for the house to be warm, the wood has to be there. 
um, the kids, uh, our, our yard also had apple trees in it and the kids would get stung by the wasps that would hang out on the apples on the ground. So it was the kid's job to collect the apples and put them in a tub. So the guy who owns the bear orphanage near us could come and pick up the apples and the wasps wouldn't sting the kids on the feet. So as much as you can have these tasks be directly, you know, if you don't clean up the apples, you're going to get stung by wasps and the bears won't have their, you know, I, I realize these are highly specific examples, but as much as possible, try to keep those expectations logical. And, you know, taking away a electronic device for a kid not doing their homework isn't a logical um, consequence. You know, if I don't get my work into my editor on time, she doesn't take my phone away. She asks for a meeting to talk about what's wrong and how we can do, you know, that kind of thing. So anyway, that's clear expectations, clear consequences, and PS, follow through on those clear expectations. Interesting. Um, so you're saying, hey, you know, you can't just say it. You have to go 100%. And, oh, of course. You know, I mean, we all and, know that. Yeah, you know, yeah. the, the we watch parents out there at the grocery <laughs> store, you know, if you don't do this, this is going to happen. And then that never happens. We know that's ineffectual. But when it comes to our own lives, it's really, really hard to follow through um, with our consequences. But, you know, we have to. And what if the con- what if the consequences aren't you know the examples you gave were fantastic because those you know I can see directly the line but kids aren't right. always so good at right. understanding why they need to do their homework you know right. oh I don't you exactly. know or yeah so how, what, which is why the line needs to be as clear as possible because as I said if I if I say to my kid in September look if you don't keep your grades above a whatever a B or better you will lose your electronic devices in January given kids cognitive development and we don't have time to go into it but just know kids do not have the upper brain function especially younger kids to make those connections so when we take their phone away like in september when they're sitting there struggling with their homework and not wanting to do it the idea that their phone might get taken away in january makes zero sense to them right it's not something that they're able to weigh in a in a way that we as adults might be able to brains not develop done developing till the early 20s early to mid 20s um so for example if a kid is not doing their homework one of the things i recommend is that um the logical thing that might happen is that you might need to talk to your teacher about why the homework is not getting done. So rather than saying you're going to lose your device, it's that you're going to run the meeting with me and your teacher where where there is support to help you figure out a better way to do this or for us to understand what's going on. And, you know, helping a kid set up that meeting and having the kid uh, run that meeting, I've done lots of these as teachers because I recommended them as a teacher and I've done lots, I've done them as a parent. Um, The kid would much rather lose their phone. Let me just put it that way. Uh, You know, that's, but that's Mm -hmm. a logical consequence. So, and it can be really hard, but just pause for a second and say, what is the natural consequence that will flow if my kid leaves food all over this plate and leaves it on the table? Well, it's going to harden. It's going to be harder to clean. So if I pick it up and clean it for them, they will never understand that, right? But if they come down in two hours and the food's hardened on there and they're still responsible for dealing with that hardened on food or they didn't clean it off before they put it in the dishwasher and now it's coming out of the dishwasher with hardened off food, there's st- explain it to them. Give them the why. Kids, kids learn because of the why, not because of the just because I said so. So as much as possible, the why is sort of the answer to this question. What a great 
what a great answer. That's really helpful. That's really helpful okay. how to kind of align that. And because the homework one, my kids don't have homework, but you know, schoolwork, that's right. when my kids are younger, but, um, but mm-hmm. that's the same idea. And that's going to be very helpful. I'm going to bookmark well, this very, interview. <laughs> I'm very, I don't know how young your kids are, but I'm very, very happy to hear they do not have homework as younger children because the research is fairly clear on uh, elementary school and homework. And the fact that they don't have homework is a good sign. Excellent. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Um, though they do have, you know, they're, um, you know, eight-year-old and five-year-old and they, mm-hmm. they do have, you know, point systems at school and they get excited by points and they get a certain number of points to get something at the end of the week. And, and that's not, just to break in, that's not going to last. Um, mm-hmm. So point systems are extrinsic motivators. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, behavior like class dojo, class, things where you're being rewarded for behavior, uh, sticker charts, um, the promise of, you know, that kind of, I'm going to give you this extrinsic thing if you do that. These work in the short term. They do not work for long-term investment and motivation. So if for tasks that require long-term attention and focus, for class, for tasks that require us to like prioritize goals, for tasks that require creativity, um, they do not work. This is not just me saying this. This is 50 years of really, really high quality research that, and we know it's high quality because we have studies of the studies. They're called meta-analysis. Um, they don't work. Um, so if that's true, then we got to go back to, well, what does work, what the deepest learning happens in the framed in within the context of intrinsic motivation. So how do we get that as often as possible when it's, we know it's impossible to get it for everything. Um, And that's autonomy, choice, control. So autonomy, competence, helping kids learn actual skills, not just like, Ooh, I think I can do this because everyone's been telling me I'm so smart and I'm so talented. And real connection, not just to the people around them and their teachers and parents, but to connection to the thing that they're learning. And that's all about relevance. Um, so autonomy, connection and competence, autonomy, competence and connection. And, and so, you know, points may work in the short term, but they are not going to work for your kids in the long term. So you better be trying to figure out ways now to keep them invested. Absolutely. No, I, I, it makes a ton of sense. Um, but in terms of, you know, things we can control. So that's happening and that's good. They're going to keep getting their points for however long. Um, So if you're a parent, just sort of go along with it. You know, don't, don't have the teacher stop reading, but yeah. I I mean, I think it's part of a larger uh, conversation that's very much happening and schools I've been in education. I was an education reporter for many, many years. And there is a trend right now away from, for example, A through F grading towards um, standards-based assessment or mastery-based assessment. When we were choosing a high school for my daughter, because we had to move, we went with the school district that essentially wrote the book on standards-based assessment and formative assessments and standardized, you know, away from the whole Um, Can you play the games and get the high grade versus do you actually know, understand what you're learning? And there are schools that are very much moving in that direction. In fact, I get hired to go to those schools to help the parents understand that this is not some fad. This is actually what works best for learning and that they should be really excited about the fact that they're not going to just see a report card with a letter on it or a number on it, because that's not much information. As a parent, I want to know, not like, oh, my kid got to be great. What does that mean? What does my kid know and not know as opposed to a standards-based assess or grade, a scorecard or grade or whatever, where I say, oh, 
my kid knows the difference between a verb and a noun, but doesn't know the difference between a verb and an adverb. Okay, well, that's something we need to work on. That's what I can actually is actionable for me. That's something I can control. So, you know, I think this is a conversation that's happening and I'm, I'm behind it. I'm going to keep railing for it as much as possible. So as a parent, your job is to simply, you know, keep your eyes open, listen, advocate for what works best for learning while doing your best to keep your kids engaged, despite the systems that are in place in education. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, so the the ex, extrinsic motivators we're talking about that we don't uh, necessarily want, we don't want. Um, so as a parent, I want to help my kids as much as possible. I want to ignore right. those external ones. I want to w- work on intrinsic motivation. What are other ways that parents kind of inadvertently maybe prevent their kids from failing, from learning through failure? So it turns out when, when you talk about... When we focus highly on the extrinsic motivators, on the grades, the points, the scores, all that sort of stuff, what we're telling them is, yeah, 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 learning, but what I really care about is this, uh, this grade, this point, this score. So for example, paying kids for grades. One of the things we know is that if you want your kid to not want to learn math, the fastest way to do that is to pay them for their math grades, because that will actually undermine their interest in wanting to learn that thing and teach them that it's the learning is not the most important thing, that the money is the most important thing. Because think about it. When I was growing up, Pizza Hut held Um, did these summer things where if you read enough books, you could get coupons for pizza. In that equation, which is a child going to understand as having more value? All those books they read or the pizza coupon? Well, of course it's the pizza coupon because if we were truly invested in making reading the worthwhile thing, we would give kids books for eating pizza, right? That's the correct equation there. So when we give kids money for grades, when we give kids more love in exchange for performance, what we're teaching them is, this is what I care about. And and I'm not just saying this as parents, I'm talking about this as teachers too. We are part of the problem too. Um, When I care most about that number they get on some big test, then what I'm teaching them is that number is more important than the learning itself, because what we know is that the, you know, big uh, cumulative or for uh, assessments are not great for learning. They're actually a snapshot. They're not necessarily really great for learning. Um, So overly focusing on those extrinsic motivators, the trophies, the how many minutes you play in a game, that kind of stuff is less important than those questions like, how do you feel about your performance on this test? What do you think you need to work on for next time? Essentially having a lot of conversations more about the process and less about the end product is going to, and not ignoring, you use the word ignore, which is fine, but I'm never ignoring the grades, the points, the scores. What I'm saying is, What's more important to me as a parent is the process. What did you learn? What did you need? What do you need to do differently next time? What worked um, in this particular scenario? What didn't work? What are you going to take forward with you at the beginning in my intro? You talked about the stinky and dirty show on Amazon, that entire show that's for preschoolers about this. What didn't work that we can set aside and leave behind because we're not going to take that into the next iteration of this attempt uh, to do whatever it is. And what did work? What's promising? So let me take that forward with me and learn from my mistake as opposed to, 
I better not reveal that I make mistakes or no one's going to think I'm smart. And that's where the Carol Dweck fixed and growth mindset stuff comes in. Kids who believe that taking risks and taking challenges and taking the challenge problems are really, really important to building their brain power are going to learn more than kids who are scared to take risks, scared to raise their hand and say they don't understand because they're afraid what people will think of them or what they'll think of themselves. What if I admit I don't know this thing? What if I get a C? If I think I might get a C because I took a, 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 a quiz that had challenge problems on it, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna stay away from the challenge problems because the challenge problems are harder. I'm more likely to make mistakes there. And what we end up with when we're constantly praying to the gods of the extrinsic motivators is kids who are really, really afraid to take risks or to try something new or to try something they've never tried before because they're afraid they won't be good at it right away. And you get these this spiral of perfectionism that's not a good kind of perfectionism, a bad kind of perfectionism that leads to anxiety and all that kind of stuff. So the more we can focus on the process and the less we can focus on the end product, the better. That's fantastic. Um, where the gift of failure comes in, you know, you're focusing on what we can focus on and not every yeah. time things will work out. But if you do the yeah. right process, the idea is you'll... Well, and we can't just, I mean, talking about it is great. We have to model it. So one of the things we do in our house, and I talk about this also in the book, is we focus more on goals than grades. So every season, even now as adults, uh, my kids and I, every season, we try to set a couple of goals, three usually, um, that we want to take on. What are the three goals we have for this coming season, semester, or whatever that thing is? And one of those goals has to be a little bit scary. It has to be a little bit out of our comfort zone. And the next season, when we're setting new goals, we talk about how those old ones went. And I still have all of our index cards that have all of our goals on them. And there are some that have never been met. Um, but that's okay, because they're my private goals. And I'm showing my kids all the time, I am scared to death of this reach project that I'm proposing myself for. But I'm going to do it because that's how I stretch as an individual. That's how I get better at my job. Oh, that's fantastic. And I, I love goals too and goal setting. Um, yeah. And I know it's, it's um, you know, private, but I would be curious in the context of your kids, you know, young, especially when they were younger, the types of goals you would be, uh, they would, yeah. they would be setting, I guess, for the academic, were yeah, they not academic? Yeah, it was really cool. It was really, really fun because you cannot dictate your kids' goals for them. You just can't, right? Like, as much as I want my kid's goal to be, I'm going to hand in all my math homework early so I can get feedback. I can't impose that on my kid as their goal as much like you can be sneaky and suggest it, but that's not <laughs> theirs anymore. Yeah. And when you want real investment in something, it has to be their idea, right? Really good parents understand how to feed kids ideas that may turn around so that it feels like it's their idea, but that's a whole other topic. Um, but yeah, early on, the first time we did this, uh, my daughter was having issues with math specifically. And yet her goals were all um, about things that never would have occurred to me. One of them, that which I share in the book, was I tend to hang out with the same people all the time. And, you know, I'd like to try to make some more friends. And she was shy. And so that was like blew the head, the top off my head because I, for a lifetime skill, I would much rather her be focusing on stretching and 
trying to be more social and make friends with people that are maybe not the natural people she might spend the most time with, that is a far more useful skill for her life than handing in her math homework a little bit early each week. So she came to goals that, and actually my son set that as a goal for himself as well. And, you know, that just, A, it was really cool for me and B, it taught me something about my children that I did not expect. Um, I did not expect that that would have been a goal for my daughter. And it gave me a deeper understanding of who she is as a human being, which is one of the things that can help us be more connected to our kids. Oh yeah. That's, I bet really fascinating. I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to doing that with my kids. That's a great and idea. P.S. If we show them that we think their goals are stupid, we are essentially saying to them that we think you're just frivolous. Well, you're not that you're stupid, but that, you know, the things that you want or the things that you want to get better at are not worth considering. And that right there is a way to undercut connection. And so as much as, you know, I've had parents come to me at talks and say, this one mom in particular came to me and she's like, I, I understand that it's really important that an important skill for my daughter to have is writing. So I want her to write every single day and she doesn't want to do it. So how do I make her do it? And I just turned it around. And I said, I, I'm sorry, why is it that you feel like it's really important for your daughter to write every day? And if someone hates writing, someone forcing them to write every day will make them hate writing more. So how do we finesse this situation into an understanding that writing is maybe a really important life skill. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't for what she wants to do with her life, but understanding more what she wants to do with her life will give us the levers to then have that conversation. Because if she says she wants to be a journalist, then that is a worthy goal of writing every day. But if she says she wants to be a, I don't know, whatever doesn't require writing every day, then, you know, maybe it's not. So having these, and you know, sometimes these are hard things for us to assess, like for that dad who wanted his kid to make his bed every morning, you know, my turning around and saying, I understand why that's an important goal for you. This guy happened to have been in the military too. Um, I understand why that's your goal. And that is a fantastic goal for you, for you. But that may not be one of the things that your child holds sacred as something that they need to do in order to become a better human being. So finding out what your kid values is not just about the thing. It's about finding out what your kid values so that you know your kid better, so that you have the ammunition to say, you know, sweetie, if you want to play soccer as a profession, you also have to keep your grades up because when you're looking at possibly playing in college or possibly, you know, whatever, um, that the grades part's going to be important too not just to your coach next semester, but to the future. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I, 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 I'm not sure exactly why helicopter parenting and things like that became popular, but, you know, from my personal perspective, you know, I want my kids to be happy. I don't want to see yeah. them struggle. I don't want to see them fail. And I know that Here's they the thing. Can I stop you for a second? Please. I don't, I don't, Ju you know, saying you want your kids to be happy, that's something that we all say. And of course I want my kids to be happy, but I don't just want them to be happy. I want them to feel fulfilled and I want them to be meaningful members of our society and educated members of our society. And to have a kid that has just been happy their entire life, 
I think is doing kids a massive disservice because to just be happy means that for a lot in a lot of places we've rolled away, you know, their need to experience frustration. And and I have to say that the research is really clear on that too. Kids who have not been allowed to feel some, maybe not comfort, but some um knowledge of what it feels like to be frustrated and to understand that they can live with that, they can tolerate that and push through, those kids learn more in school. Those kids are more capable of figuring out, uh, sorry, of sticking with tasks that are difficult for them. This comes out of the research of Wendy Grolnick. Um, And those kids, so kids of autonomy, supportive parents, kids whose parents have not just supported them, but have like sat back a little bit and let their kid feel a little bit of frustration as opposed to highly direct kids of highly directive parents or uh, helicopter parents. Um, the kids of the autonomy supportive parents simply are in a position to learn more in school because they're more likely to stick with tasks that are difficult and tasks that are difficult tend to fall into a category of things called desirable difficulties, which are an incredibly powerful learning tool. One of the most powerful tools I have in my toolbox as a teacher. And if it's true that kids who can't feel frustrated, can't stick with tasks that are more frustrating for them, those kids may be happier in the sense that they feel less unease in themselves on a daily basis, but they are not going to feel fulfilled or less likely. Okay. Let's say, let's, let's get rid of the, the clear black and white answers. They are less likely going to feel fulfilled, complete, supported, um, reaching their potential, self-efficacy, they're probably going to have problems with learned helplessness if you have just been focusing on their happiness. Um, Happiness and self-worth, feeling self-worth and feeling self-efficacy are not necessarily the same thing. And that's why this is so hard for us. I hate seeing my kids upset. I hate seeing my kids feel stupid. I hate feeling seeing my kids feel frustrated, but it is an normal and incredibly important part of their development. So I would love it if we would say, I just, instead of saying, I just want my kids to be happy, saying, I want my kids to be fulfilled and to be the best version of themselves in their lives. No, that, that's beautiful. And that that really resonates with me. And especially on an intellectual level, I I totally get it. On an emotional level, I'd be curious how you'd advise us dads, us parents yeah. on when we see our kids struggling, when we see them yeah. going through failure and some of the challenges of life, how, how, how we should deal with those emotions. So we're, you know, helping, not hindering them, knowing that we're not feeling great about it ourselves. And this is especially challenging for parents of kids who, you know, have uh, a diagnosis of a learning difference or um, some sort of physical special needs, or, you know, that have kids where we're feeling like, oh man, they have the deck stacked against them anyway. And just why should I make them struggle in this particular situation? Um, you know, that's really, really tough. And it's incredibly tough for me. And without getting, uh, without revealing too much about my kids, I do have a kid who has really had to struggle with a lot of challenges. And if I were to sit back and let them, um, and just focus on their happiness, then what I'm doing is setting them up to really have an a challenging adulthood. So my constant mantra as a parent is, do I want them to do it perfectly right now by dictating how they do it? Or do I want them to be able to do it themselves next time? And 
not what is my goal for this kid or this project or this task right now, but where do I want my kid to be in six months? Where do I want my kid to be in a year? As a teacher, I'm constantly thinking about where I want my kids, my students, sorry, common problem with teachers. We often make that mistake. Where do I want my students to be in five years? If I run into my student in five years and I ask them, what did you get out of reading King Lear? And they tell me that they remember what year Shakespeare was born versus they remember um, that the storm on the heath and the storm in King Lear's head were related in some way and that this was really about the human struggle. Um, I don't care if they remember the stupid details of, you know, that they can quote from this or that they know what year something happened. I want the big picture and I want the same for my kids. I want my kids to feel a sense of self-efficacy, which P.S. I also happen to speak and write about substance use prevention, self-efficacy, self-confidence, feeling like uh, not having learned helplessness. These are all really important preventions against substance use, not to mention substance use disorder um, over the lifetime that's my goal for my kid. And like I said, not short-term happiness, but long-term fulfillment. That's my goal for my kid. And um, if we can constantly keep that mantra in our head, and the other thing I ask parents to do constantly is sort of just remember a child's brain is not done developing into the early to mid-20s. So every time you're frustrated with your kid's inability to execute, especially something like an executive function task, something about you know, organization or adulting or any of those things, just look right between their eyes because that right there is their frontal lobe and that's not fully engaged yet. So this is not about your kid being dumb. This is not about your kids, you know, being ineffectual. This is about the fact that all the neurons haven't connected yet. And this is a process. Child development, neurodevelopment is a long-term process that has ups and downs every single day, like the stock market. And what we're looking for are long-term gains. And we have to look past the emergencies, the, oh, I need to take my homework, my kid's homework to school because they forgot it and they're going to get an F. Or, oh, I have to take my kid's cleats to school or they will be benched this afternoon. No, don't take that stuff because what I'm more interested in is and there are exceptions to that rule, don't come for me. Um, If your kid is really good at remembering stuff, but they forget this one time because their guinea pig died last night, that's an exception. But in general, I'm more important in helping my kid remember their, how to, knowing how to remember their cleats, having strategies for remembering their cleats and having strategies for remembering to take their homework to school than rescuing him that day, even though it will make me feel fantastic if I do it. It will be an outward expression of my love for them. They will know I have their back, but I really will have their long-term, their adult back less because I'm not helping them get to a place where they can do that for themselves. Oh, that's, that's, that's really brilliant actually. Cause it's funny. I mean, we, we intuitively know our kids, you know, brains aren't developed. We know, um, that it's not always easy to get them to think long-term about homework, mm-hmm. about whatever it is. And here we are as parents being like, well, I'm developed. My brain's, you know, done. Right. But I don't think long-term always I'm, I'm often in the moment saying, Hey, you know, clean up, not saying, Hey, what will these actions help, help build six months from yeah. now or a year from now or in the future yeah. to your point to build a more 
you know, fulfilling life. Um, yeah, there's a, an example in Gift of Failure about not taking my kids' homework to her at school. And someone argued with me on Facebook, someone I really respect argued with me on Facebook about it and said, you know, no, as a family, we have each other's backs and, you know, we have to show each other that we have each other's backs. And if your husband forgot his phone charger, you would take it to him at work, right? And I realized, yeah, I probably would. And that messed me up for most of the day. I was like, oh my gosh, what do I do now? And then I realized, yeah, but my A, my husband is an adult. B, he's an extremely responsible adult who had a very specific reason why he forgot his charger that particular day. Um, I'm not raising my husband. You know, that's not part of my job to raise my husband. And if it is, you need to rethink your marriage. And, but it is my job to give my kid the learning opportunities she needs in order to have the strategies in place to take her homework to school. And what ended up happening that day is her teacher had a sort of a, a come to Jesus moment where she was like, and the, the teacher was like, look, this has been happening too much. You have to figure out a strategy today, right now for how you will remember your homework tomorrow. And that moment became a turning point in my daughter's life. She, that day, she came up with the strategy that she has used through being in college now to remember her stuff. And I, and that happens to be a checklist, a tool I had been teaching her about for years, but it wasn't until she thought it was her idea and she came up with it on her own that it truly became her tool. And I've kept all of those checklists, by the way, because they are so funny to me because the first one started off with uh, morning stuff. And it was like the first on the list was get dressed. So obviously, if your kid's having trouble getting dressed in the morning, you know, we have a deeper conversation to have. But it was adorable to me that like, for years, the last thing she did before leaving for, for the bus was looking at that list to make sure that she did. And that was something that was her tool she came up with. No matter how many times I talked about making a list, it wasn't going to work for her until she invested personally in that tool. And it was because of that wonderful teacher, Mr. Dano. I'll say it over and over and over again. Thank you, Mr. Dano. I adore you. Fourth grade. Um, that's where it happened on that day when I didn't take the homework and I gave the opportunity for, I gave my daughter the opportunity to have that moment with her teacher. And if I'd taken the homework, it would have been lost forever. Absolutely. No, it may I'm, have happened later, <laughs> could have happened somewhere down the line. Wouldn't have happened on that day though. So I'm yeah. glad it happened in fourth grade and not in 11th grade or in college. Yeah, no, absolutely. And when we talk about, you know, long-term, you know, fulfillment and having our, our long-term gains. We want our kids to right. be um, kind of on the right path, however you define that. I, I can't help but notice, you know, you have these two books, The Gift of Failure and The Addiction Inoculation, and you touched on it very briefly. But is there, what is the the relationship between, you know, addiction and um, not failing or, or, or how would you yeah, describe I'm, that? I'm really, really glad you asked that question because when we think about overparenting, we tend to think about, you know, rich parents who can go beat on the desk of the head of school and say, you will not let my child fail in this class. Da, 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 da. So um, what's really fascinating for me, so that kind of kid ends up, uh, there are two different, how do I say this? So, Self-efficacy is one of the most important things that we can give our kids. And self-efficacy is the sense that if I take action, change will result. And lots and lots of kids especially today, have um, a lot of, have very deep feelings of a lack of self-efficacy. And as someone who has taught in a rehab for adolescents, I see two kinds. 
the kids who were raised um, in homes where they were abused, neglected, raised in group homes, in the foster care system, where no matter what action they took on their own, it probably was not going to change anything about the world they lived in. They couldn't change whether or not they were moved from one foster care to another. They couldn't change whether or not they got beat up at the end of the day. That was outside of their control. This one kid told me once, why would I ever talk about, you know, um, you know, my goals, because I'm just going to end up in prison, um, like all the other men in my family. That's a kid with no self-efficacy, right? But kids who also have had all choice taken away from them, kids, and I've met lots of these kids, kids who tell me, oh, I'm going to Stanford and I'm going to be a doctor. That is what my parents have decided is going to happen. And in that particular case, I asked the the teachers, was this just hyperbole or is this like a real thing? Is this, and the teachers were like, oh no, that is real. That is what these parents have communicated to this kid. Um, And when kids have that lack of oh, it doesn't really matter what I do. My destiny has been laid out for me and I'm either going to fail at it or, you know, it's going to just happen. Both of those kids have really, really low levels of self-efficacy, which is why I see a lot of really rich kids with no feeling of control over their lives and really kids who have had very high levels of adverse childhood experiences, who have grown up in in um, situations where they have no control that have really low levels of self-efficacy. So when the gift of failure, or sorry, when the addiction inoculation came out and we were trying to figure out what excerpts to put where, I knew that the section on self-efficacy had to go to the New York Times where I thought I'd get the largest readership because building your kids' feelings of competence, self-efficacy, um, getting rid of learned helplessness, all of that is incredibly powerful for um for pushing off kids' needs to use substances because a lot of what we see in kids who use substances is, I have no control anyway, you know, why not just, you know, have this carpe diem experience, you know, in this moment. Um, And, you know, there's, it's a lot more complicated than that, but self-efficacy is one of the most important things we can give our kids. It not only prevents substance use, um, and by the way, in preventing substance use, the more we, the longer we delay substance use while their brains are developing, the more we can prevent substance use disorder from developing. If a kid first uses when they're in middle school, their chances of developing uh, substance use disorder over their lifetime is around a little bit under 50%. If they use, if we can delay it for just two years, we drop that in half. And if we can delay for another two years till senior year of high school, it drops in half again and gets really, really close to what sort of the, um, the, societal averages are sort of national average for people with substance use disorder, people like me. Um, And, you know, oh my gosh, 50% versus close to 10%? Delay, delay, delay has to be the answer to that. How do we get them to delay, delay, delay? Really good information about what it does to adolescent brains because adolescent use and adult use are not the same thing. It is a very different environment in there in our developing brains. And, um, and giving them real information on how many people use and why and all that sort of stuff so that they can make, we can give them the benefit of real information to make good decisions. And, you know, that includes a consistent, clear message of no, not until your brain is done developing. I 
not going to, you know, let you have a kegger in the basement and take everybody's keys so they'll be safe. I'm not going to give you sips at the dinner table because it's parents who have a consistent and clear message of no, not until um, your brain is done developing. Those kids uh, have much, much, much lower levels of substance use and substance use disorder over their lifetime. Wow. No, that that's a lot of very great information. And um, <laughs> I talked as fast as I could. I knew it was no. my one opportunity to get the prevention stuff in there. You know, and there's a lot of myths that need to be busted. The whole, oh, if I give my kids sips, then they'll learn how to be moderate drinkers or, oh, kids are going to drink anyway. So I'll, you know, give let them drink in the basement, take everybody's keys so they're safe. Both of those run counter to that. Both the kids of the parents who make those choices have much, much, much higher levels of substance use disorder over their lifetime. That wow. European myth of moderation. I have a whole bunch of videos on um, my Instagram reels about that. And if you go to jessicalahey.com under videos, there's a table of contents. And there's like an eight episode arc where I talk about all of the European numbers and why we're holding Europe up as the end all be all when they have the highest level of alcohol consumption, they have the highest level of uh, illness attributable to alcohol and the highest levels of death attributable to alcohol in the entire world. It might not be the best idea to hold up the European, European, Europe as a whole. Um, And yeah, yeah, yeah. Come with, come at me. Yes, there are exceptions. Happy to talk about that. They're in the videos. No, no, that's, um, that's really wonderful. And this, <laughs> no, I, I didn't know that. I mean, you know, you, cause that's what yeah. you, the common misconception, you know, you say, oh, just, yeah. you know. Well, and that's actually the videos came out of, it's harder to get parents to come to a, a talk about substance use disorder. It's this really scary topic, especially if you have your own demons you're wrestling with. I, when I was a florid alcoholic and drinking every day, I wouldn't have gone to a thing on substance use prevention. It's too scary for me. So a friend of mine said, well, why don't you start making videos about the, into all the content so that parents can watch it privately. So if you go to jessicalahey.com under videos, there are videos for both Gift of Failure and the Addiction Inoculation, 90 seconds each. You can handle 90 seconds and uh, they're all linked uh, according to topic. Oh, no, that's fantastic. And um, Jess, this has been a tremendous conversation. Uh, You know, listeners, you should go to jessicalahey.com. I'll put that in the show notes. Check out her book, The Gift of Failure as well as the addiction inoculation. Uh, and as, as you just heard, she's got some great examples online where you can start to learn and then dive deeper um, through her through your books there, Jess. And what's, what are two takeaways you would give us dads who are listening today, uh, you know, from your book or just in general from your experience? Yeah. No matter what those goals are we have for our kids in terms of SAT scores or where they get into college or what they end up doing with their lives, the process of learning is going to be far more important than the end product. If you really, really want your kid invested in being a lifelong learner, if you want them invested in whatever those goals are. So seriously, every single day, be thinking about how I can support this process of my kid becoming over these in, over these tangible, you know, the grades, the points, the scores, the trophies, the red, the ribbons, all that sort of stuff. Um, how can I do that every single day? And um, just remembering, you know, our kids' brains are really a project uh, that's going to take a lot of time. It starts, uh, you know, this huge reconstruction of the brain starts at puberty and ends in the early to mid twenties. And until it's done, their brains are highly. Um, 
vulnerable to environmental factors, whether that's neglect, whether that's um, withdrawal of love in exchange for performance, that's emotional manipulation, whether it's gaslighting, you know, when your kid comes to you and says, mom, I don't know what I'm doing in math class. And we say, well, that can't be true. You're so gifted. You're so talented. That's gaslighting. That's saying, I would prefer you not believe that perception of reality. I want you to take my perception of reality and substitute it for your own. Um, All of these attempts to emotionally manipulate our kids so that they feel confident, but not necessarily competent. They need, they need to believe it in themselves. The more they have skills that we can't take away from them, the more they've achieved things that are their own, the more they're going to truly believe that they have self-efficacy and that they are competent and that they can stride into adulthood, being able to do things and not just ask us how to do things. Wow. Great. Those are great lessons. And this whole podcast has been really, really fascinating oh, and, so and informative. Glad. So Jess, thank you so much for joining us. And um, you are so welcome. I hope to talk to you soon. Absolutely. I'd love that. Thanks. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you haven't joined us yet, go to adadspath.com to get our free newsletter exclusively for dads. And do you know a friend who might like this podcast? Send it on. We want to help as many dads as possible make fatherhood count. Dad on. <laughs>